I was fast asleep down the hall when he drove a pair of scissors into our body repeatedly until she lay lifeless. Even then he was quiet. It was past midnight when a student noticed that the outer gate to, the, to our women-only residence had not been locked as it usually was at 11pm when the sub-warden on duty would check the mandatory log of male guests to ensure that all the men had left the building. But that night Mello was on duty and according to the log there was still one man left inside, the ex-boyfriend whom she had signed in hours earlier. When they knocked on her door she did not answer. Only then, only then did they look for her for the master key, but by that time she was gone. Several hours later, I set off for classes like normal, ignoring my friends' appeals to take the day off, desperate for distraction. Later, I attended a meeting with the, with the university administration, a thinly veiled public relations briefing prefaced with perfunctory condolences. Don't speak to the media, they urged us, seemingly unaware that we could barely speak at all. I met a counsellor who walked me through, through a cutboard cutout of the cycle of grief. Her road phrases floated around me like meaningless noise. Then we had a vigil, and then we wrote platitudes on our card that would accompany Mello's body across the country, back to her mother, who had staunchly refused to believe the news. And then we organised the memorial, and only then, when, as we sang the closing song, Make me a channel of your peace, where there is hatred, let me bring your love. Only then, in the rawness of stillness, did sorrow rip through my shock. I sank into the pew and cried as the piano kept playing. Welcome to PageCast, a podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Bull Publishers. By interviewing the authors responsible for some of your most loved books, we explore the thoughts, ideas, emotions, and creative processes that led to the writing of these books. If you're a reader with a zesty interest in people and stories, do stick around and enjoy what PageCast has to offer. Before we start, we want to issue a disclaimer. Conversations hosted by PageCast are happening from all corners of the world. So if we do have any inconsistencies with sound, we ask for your understanding as a listener. Hi, hello, and welcome to PageCast. In today's episode, author and editor Sue Nyati will be in conversation with Bongani Kona, editor of the recently released Our Ghosts Were Once People. Thank you for taking this time out to chat to me about yeah. this anthology, Our Ghosts Were Once People, Stories on Death and Dying. Before you know, we start um, talking about the anthology, I just want us you know, to get to know Wangani Kona better. I mean, who is Wangani? Okay, I was going to say, may, may I please ask you for another favor? Actually, before we even begin, could we just find, like, just even just how was your day so that we can ground ourselves? Because I still feel <laughs> it's still like it's very disconnected, this digital world. And I'm just looking at a screen with thing and okay. a voice coming through. So please tell me, how was your day? Just so that we can, yeah, we can be in the okay. same room together. So, sorry, let me start again. So how was your day, Mungan? <laughs> uh, mine, mine has been a lot of... Uh, running around today there's been some admin i've had to do so it's been back and forth that's why i feel like sure i need to just feel a bit grounded how's your day my day was okay um uh, you know hectic morning uh, i had to do some shopping with my sister she's getting married so last minute wedding preps and so we 
we were busy with that. And congratulations to your sister and congratulations as well on your anthology. And uh, I'm going to tell you another story about, but maybe it's not appropriate here on, yeah, on what your, what your anthology has done at, with my cousin in particular. It's quite interesting because we both have produced anthologies in 2021 for Jonathan Ball. So, and actually it was more interesting for me because I discovered when having read your essay, that you're actually from Zimbabwe, you know. Um, I didn't know that. So <laughs> it was quite, you know, it was a, a pleasant surprise. <laughs> so, yeah, so so many similarities. Yeah, no, I can say it's, it's a long story, but like, um, yeah, she went through a pretty hectic experience last year uh, when, you, when I came home with your anthologies. And she's a very slow reader, but like it's had a profound impact on her. So thank you for that. I'm thanking you vicariously. And, and thank you for, you know, introducing her to it. And I'm, I'm glad that it's been able to assist her and help her with whatever she, you know, she went through. And I think that was the aim in writing that book for people who feel like they're alone in their trauma or with their trauma. You know, just to assure them that, you know, somebody has probably been through what you've been through, that you can get through it. And I think that's like the testimony that sometimes people need that, you know, you can get through this. So, yeah, yeah thank you for sharing my work. Yeah. So, welcome, Wongani, to the podcast about this anthology that you put together, Our Ghosts Were Once People, Stories on Death and Dying. When I first received this book, I just felt like this is going to be heavy, <laughs> be a heavy read. <laughs> and, you know, with, with the pandemic, I mean, death has always been with us, right? But somehow it's been amplified. Suddenly, death is in your face. It's no longer something that's remote, even if it's strangers, but it's something that's constantly happening. Why did you decide to do this topic? Why this topic? Uh, the tragic killing of uh, a UCT student by the name of Uyinene. Uh, that was sort of in August 2019, if I'm not mistaken. So just kind of seeing the outpouring of grief, I think. And so I remember, I just remember like that, uh, that time when she had disappeared, when there was a period when nobody knew whether she was alive or dead. And like these posters had gone up on, like they were everywhere. Like, And then when the news broke, I just remember just like this, the sheer outpouring of grief, just how heartbroken everybody was. And so maybe that's the seed for the project. The, the thing is, like, the energies were already in the air. It's just that in that one particular moment, they become so hyper-focused. So, like, because we're always dealing with, with tragedies, we're always dealing with, with grief. And that's part of what it, yeah, that's part and parcel of what it means to live here. But just that moment brought it all into sharp focus. Yeah, interesting that you mention the death of Uyinene. There's this poignant line, I was fast sleep down the hall when he drove a pair of scissors into her body repeatedly until she lay lifeless. Even then he was quiet. And one of the, the things this book explores is the ways in which people die. You know, when you start reading, you, you always think of people dying one way, like most of the time. You think, and people dying from, you know, a, protect, a protracted long illness, people dying in a car accident. There are other ways that people die, and murder is one of them. People get killed. And oftentimes, you know, that brutality. And I think this is just one of those poignant essays that, that captured that. You know, it's just like it, it happens. But, you know, I think what haunted me about that essay is the quietness in which it happens, you know. Life is going on and then suddenly life is almost like stolen. And then it's gone. And so 
I just want to talk about the ways in which people die. When you put this together, were you deliberate in trying to get ways or did it just also evolve? So this at the start, I think what was just like really important was to get people from different, uh, firstly, different age groups to start with. Mm-hmm. And also people from different professions. So whether it's a doctor, whether it's a philosopher, whether it's a writer, whether it's a poet, just to get people from different perspectives. And I knew just that even just that mix alone, uh, you would get different, you would get different stories and different experiences. Um, yeah. So that was in the way that's how the, it kind of grew organically from that. But from the start was just to have as, 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 uh, uh, a, good a mix as possible of the, the amount of people so that people wouldn't be the same age. Uh, they wouldn't come necessarily from even the same class or political backgrounds. Just that having that mix of people would, uh, would ensure like different perspectives already. Our perspective of death changes as we grow. How we see death, you know, through the, from, you know, from the perspective of a child and from the perspective of an ad, from an adult. This is really a common, quite a common theme throughout the book. And I love how Shabnam Khan captured that in Brief Encounters. I could often see that, even myself, um, you know, how, how we viewed, we would be playing. You know, adults would be mourning, but we would be carefree. And life, life would still go on, you know, um, as a child, with children. And, and now I look at it from a different perspective. As adults, we are now sitting on the, the mats in mourning and we're looking at the children playing. Yeah. And and that's so interesting to me, the the perspective. So yeah, thank you. You know, because you're right. Age age plays a very important role in how we, we see and perceive death. Yeah, when I look at my own life, like how I kind of see things is, or how I so understood death is, uh, you know, when I was still very young, like I think of it as like a, a ledger, like a seesaw, rather not a ledger, like a seesaw. So at the beginning of my life, or in the early years of my life. I had so many other people on the one side of the seesaw, the live seesaw, and then one by one, they started crossing over, you know, like one by one. So gradually, I had long stretches of my own life where there was nobody crossing over, and then suddenly, they all just sort of started crossing over. And then as I become older myself, and at least I started to realize that one day, it's also going to be me that's going to be crossing over onto that side. So, But as a kid, I think one of the things that's common for children, if everything is normal, is this kind of belief that the people that I love and care for will never die or that we're all going to stay like this uh, forever. <laughs> and yeah. when you're five or four, and then, you know, gradually as you grow older, you realize that and people die. When you grow older, you realize that it's not a remote possibility anymore, you know. It's something that can actually happen. And when you start losing your peers, you feel the closeness of death. Everything's frozen in time, and everyone will always be with us, around us. How long did it take to put this anthology together? Just under two years, maybe, or just a year and a half. But everything got pushed back with the pandemic, because I started talking to people sort of like maybe late 2019. And then at that moment, you know, and this is, I hope we'll capture this in, in, in our writing and all of these things, when there was this outbreak in Wuhan, you know, and it seemed like so far away. And then all of a sudden, South Africa was going into lockdown. And I, mm. I don't know, I wonder if it was the same for you, the sense of confusion, bewilderment, like it was impossible to write in that moment. So all the deadlines got pushed back to, you know, let's push it back to late uh, 2020. And sort of the pieces came in sort of in that most of the pieces came in 
in that last quarter of 2020. And then that's when uh, most of the book was finished, around about that time. You mix in this book, I mean, there's a lot of, there's poetry, there's prose, there's photography. Was that also deliberate, you know, to have the different forms of expression? For me, like, I've just always loved uh, literary journals. I worked in, I've contributed, worked with literary journals for, yeah, for a long, long stretches of my adult life. But I've always just loved literary journals and I've loved, especially when they're themed around one particular topic, like themed around one particular issue, the different mediums are used to kind of explore that thing. So they'll use, um, they'll use essays, they'll use uh, reportage, journalism, photographs, poems, all of them exploring just this one. I just like, I fell in love with even, because my background is actually in, or at least my undergrad was mostly in sort of like journalism. So I always read, had this relationship with print, that form of the literary journal, something that I loved so much. And so when it came to this project, like at the very beginning, I was like, please, uh, can you just, because usually most projects will have, I usually, first, firstly, if it's nonfiction, it's going to be all nonfiction and it's all going to be the same length. So it will all be like 3,000 words or 3,000 words. And I was like... Mm. I love having that variation as a reader when you experience that same that variation about you read a poem and next to it is a very long essay, next to it is photographs, next to it, all of it kind of exploring the theme. Just but you've just you've just touched on something which I think connects definitely connects with you too. Like I think part of why we do all of these things is because we've had an encounter like that has just like blown us blown our minds away. This experience is so good. I hope I can give this to somebody else. Like you say, it's an interesting way to present it, you know, and especially a topic like this. I like that because initially when I received it, I thought, yo, this is going to be a morbid read. But the poetry somehow made it lighter. Instead of being heavy, it landed like a souffle. It became light. And I love the, the used car salesman. Ah, okay. You give it a read, <laughs> sorry. You, you can read it. Because the, the, the will at the end will lead me to my next question. So yeah, please go ahead and read it. Okay. All right. So the poem is called The Used Car Salesman, for anyone who's listening. And so, yeah, it moves across different years. So 1973, he sold cars, used cars with his friend Eugene. They owned a small business near the BP garage on the corner of Umgeni Road and Argyle. Eugene did most of the paperwork from their small office. 1976. Aluminium trailer with a mishmash of old carpets scattered everywhere and large beige filing cabinets near his desk. There were always three or four ashtrays around the office, always full of cigarette butts and peanut shells. Dad did most of the repairs from home and brought them in after he made sure they were roadworthy. 1985. Our house always had around six or so cars littered across the garden, most of them high up on ramps with bricks behind the back wheels. He was always working underneath them with the large blue toolbox folded out. 1988. The 1985 Toyota Corolla 1.6 GL had been in an accident, so he was fixing the wheel alignment. He said it was crabbing. The needle of the speedometer on the 1988 BMW E28 wasn't moving anymore. It was an annoying misfire from the 1973 BW Beetle. The 1985 Jaguar XJ needed a new fan belt, and the 1976 Mercedes 2040D had bad rust around the windscreen. It was smoking excessively, and the exhaust had two holes. 1992. 
For years he bled brakes, flash fluid out of master brake cylinders, brake lines and calipers, fixing starters and alternators and replacing CV joints. After almost six years together, Dad was dying in the hospital. The business shut down, the cars were sold off, the but the Corolla was the last to remain. A buyer was going to come around at 5pm to look at the car, while we hosed it down, dried it off uh, with the camel and vacuumed inside. I opened the cabbie hole to make sure it was empty, and there it sat. A torn piece of paper reads, The will is in the safe. Look after my little girl. Tell her that I love her. Help her not to cry too much. That's by Cindy Sobosuku. And that will, you know, will segue into our next, you know, topic of how death, contestation and death. Uh, yes. And, yeah, when I, and I thought of that, when I read the, the piece, this house is not for sale. And I think of our culture and how people are very wary of, of talking about wills. You know? I remember when I drew up a will because you know, I'm a single parent. Ever since I had my child, right, I always had this fear that if I die, you know, I need to make sure you know, he's taken care of somehow. And so that, that's what prompted me to write the will. But I remember when I... I then called my brother and I said to him, I need to give you a copy of the will. The first thing was, is everything all right? You know? um, and I said, yes, it is. And I think there's so much discomfort around wills. But yeah, the contestation around death is very, very, is something that happens often. Uh, we see you know, people fighting over the estates. And estates you know, take years to wrap up because of that contestation. So I think whenever we talk about death, there's always that uncomfortable it's an uncomfortable subject, even though we all know it's our eventuality that it's just uncomfortable. Absolutely. And uh, for anyone listening, uh, Tato Munare is, uh, it's a, is a photographer and his piece uh, is a photo essay in documenting houses which are under dispute. They've got graffiti on them which say, this house is not for sale. And that's the, tr uh, the title of the project. I was actually thinking at the beginning of this project, uh, Annie, the publisher at Jonathan Ball, uh, got me a copy of Atul Gawande, I hope I pronounced his name correctly, his book called Being Mortal, and he's a medical doctor. One of the book is really about the conversations at the end of life, when, because uh, sometimes the best choice is not for people to fight until the end, because the quality of life diminishes so much. So you were saying, how do we have that kind of conversation? which I guess is a step before the world. He writes quite beautifully about wanting to have the conversation with his father when he's aging and whether put him in a care home and what do you want to happen after you die and how do you want to die and the difficulty of having that conversation, but like the importance of it, not only for us just as citizens, but he's writing particularly in as someone from the medical field and how important that is. Yeah. And it's actually interesting that you, you mentioned someone in the medical profession and you, you actually alluded earlier that you were intentional about getting people in different professions. For me, that was also quite interesting, you know, because sometimes death isn't personal. It's not, it's not always intimate. Like, the, you know, that ferryman by Sudiaman Adir Makum, you know, for him it was just, it was impersonal. But at the same time, even though it's a job, it can also become very personal. And with uh, Sudirman's uh, piece is about transporting bod uh, bodies uh, across borders. 
he doesn't need to care too much. If he cares too much, he gets the sense that he thinks it will interfere with his work. You know, death is not just about dying physically. It's also dying the emotional death. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question. What did you think of Khadija Patel's piece? Because she talks about the ritual of washing bodies. When I read that piece, I was thinking that I've never been alone with a dead body, right? And at this point in time, right, that idea fills me with a sense of fear. Then I was reading these women and I could almost picture that camaraderie and the, you know, the, the conversations. And oftentimes it's, it's like that if you think of, of funerals, you know, and the gatherings, people will be talking and laughing. And then when the body comes, you almost, you know, people switch. But, and then the rituals. And the older you get, the more responsibility you have, you know, around, around death. So that for me was, was, it was interesting. Another profoundly moving story um, that also stayed with me was Karen's Shimke story. The idea that sometimes we don't really want to mourn a person who's died because our experience of them whilst they were alive wasn't always pleasant. The title of the piece is the favorite, right? And when mm. you and you don't know why, <laughs> and then when you read later, you find that the dad is abusive, and it yes. happens, and she's the firstborn. Firstborn, yeah. And she says that uh, in firstborns are usually the favorite in that respect. Yeah, grief is it's complicated. That's <laughs> yeah. if I can say that it's it's very complicated. I don't know. I ju I just blew me away the way she wrote it. Um, because in a sense, the father is damaged, right? That's, mm. that's the real thing of it. Like, he's damaged and mm. he continues to cause this... He was damaged, yeah, from a very long time and he continues to cause this damage uh, to his wife and his, and his family. And, yeah, yeah, so really... And oftentimes when we, we think of losing our parents, especially when you're also a parent, we never think of what the loss does to your children, you know? Because they're also losing their grandchildren. I mean, their grandchildren who are losing their, their grandparents. And we always focus, you know, from our point of view. And I like how Sisonke Ismana also, you know, captured that aspect. You know, I was also thinking about the similarities of what we were talking about earlier about going through time. And because uh, also her piece also like travels through. Yes through several years and yes. what you notice about mortality, what you come to understand about mortality in that journey mm. through time. I think she captured that very well. But I also just wanted to say something else about in terms of losing children and this poem by the late Angififi Tladla to his daughter. I kept thinking like this must have been the most difficult thing to write, the most difficult experience to have gone through, the most, also the most difficult I think to write, and the title of the poem for those who are listening is called uh, The Girl Who Then Feared to Sleep, and I think it's just like absolutely, absolutely incredible, but wow. Do you I want just, to read it for the audience? Okay, cool. Uh, I'll do that. And the title of the piece is, uh, poem is called The Girl Who Then Feared to Sleep, and it's for my daughter by Angififi Lata. Doctors and nurses told her she was dying, the girl who then feared to sleep. Doctors and nurses warned us we must switch the dying, the girl who then feared to sleep. She did not fear the sunset, she did not fear the sunrise, she did not fear the disease that plundered her, she did not fear the complications that maddened her, she did not fear the pains that twisted her. Sleep was what she feared. We wondered what images exploded in that head, 
when sleep stalked towards her, my girl, days became a spirit dolphin, shooting herself up recklessly, and rattled her exoskeleton to all the rooms, and made the blackest coffee, and lit the cacophony of rattles, bleats, hi-fi, and TV sets flare. We wondered what images exploded in that skull. We tried to help and purchase help. No, she feared. When sleep finally ambushed her, she would talk, groan, chew something, probably scaring off the claws of sleep. On discovering she had slid into sleep, my girl, taller than usual, would perform the ritual, rattling up and down the rooms. We wondered what images exploded. We tried to help and purchased help. No, she feared. One morning in spring, she was all hope and health, and all day long she exuded life and joy, till the sun bled beauty. Then alone she heard the steps. She saw death, she had no words, but rattles. She was all rattles and jerks. Wow. <laughs> you know, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm going to close on that because it's such a powerful parting shot and closing about the book. I'm in awe of, you know, the work you've done here and the way you've done it and put it together. It just, you know, really opened my mind to, Wait, so you know. I've, I've got a deal for you. I've got a deal for you. Can I make a deal with you? <laughs> Okay, cool. I've, I've got a cherry poem. It's, it's only three stanzas long. We'll, we'll end okay. on that one. And it's the poem at the end of the book by Robert Barrow, and it's called My Death. I want to die in bed or sitting on a chair, like an old car engine slipping out of gear. Stop eating altogether like my dog Max when he died. Call enemies and friends to say goodbye. Here's my will signed and witnessed. Forget about a coffin, use a plank. Put me in the ground and plant a tree. It'll have my bones to thank. I want above all else to be away, my fire to burn completely into ash. And if there's anywhere to go, I'll be going there. You know I won't be coming back. That's mm -hmm. the end. Stories on Death and Dying, published by Jonathan Ball. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of PageCast. We have an incredible lineup of author interviews, so head over to our Facebook and Instagram and follow Jonathan Ball Publishers to stay updated and in the know regarding future episodes. Thanks for your interest in the story behind the story. Happy reading from everyone at PageCast. <laughs>